Today I welcome Mark Lepard, MBE, Headmaster at the British School of Al-Qabarat in Abu Dhabi. In this episode, I discuss the work-life balance of a head, adapting leadership styles, leading a school abroad, and ask whether British education is still the envy of the world. Let's talk about leadership style. What would you say is your leadership style? Because, you know, running a school, running anything, there's lots of different styles of leadership. I like to be inclusive. I think that goes back to my sports background. I mean, I played rugby at a fairly decent level and, and I've always liked to believe in the team being stronger together. You know, we talk about synergy and the combination of all the parts, etc. But I genuinely believe in that. So I think I like to be inclusive. When I get the bit between my teeth, I like to drive as hard as I possibly can. And my motivation to that is everything I try and do and try and encourage others to do, so we work as a team, is to benefit the students. So I always say to staff, if you're going to bring something to me, try and answer the question I'm going to ask, which is how does this benefit the students? So I try and have the students at the heart of all I do. And that is difficult as well. It's easy to say, but, you know, there's times when you've got to financially balance things. But my sort of raison d'etre is, right, can we work it that the students are benefiting from this decision? And if they're not, I lose enthusiasm for that decision, if I'm honest. Why are we sitting here talking about this where at the end of the day, student down the corridor is not going to benefit from it? So my leadership style is really sort of student-centred. I'd like to say inclusive and try and bring people along. And it does come across. You talk about inclusivity. I think it's, it's really important for any leader because sometimes, you know, there can be the leader who just is kind of pointing and pointing. Listen, you've got to follow me. And there's the other say, look, this is where we've got to get to. So having a purpose and purpose when, when you're running a school is always about the children, the outcomes that they're going to have, the experiences they're going to have, that they're going to go out and go, do you know what, they had an incredible time at your school and they feel empowered now to go off and, and become a better part of the world when they become an adult. So do you think a great head can lead anywhere? You know, you talked about that's where you'd like to go. Do you think a head can easily transfer? I'm mixed on this answer, if I'm absolutely honest. I think some people can and some can't. I think it's all about the context that you're in and the context you're becoming aware of. So at the British School of we offer a leadership program to our sixth form. It's our program. We've written it, accredited by Institute of Leadership and Management. It includes a mini MBA, supported by local universities, predominantly delivered by senior staff, including myself. In that program, we talk about, I like to call it situational leadership. I led Doha College for nine years and have led BSAC for six. Both schools are different similar context, not identical. And I think the type of school, that type of school suits me. They were both schools that were very strong and needed a nudge to go to that next higher level. I would find it hard for myself, I think, if I was in a school that was completely failing to be motivated to turn that around. And it's not that I wouldn't want to do it. I'd be quite sad going to work that the school's got in that state. And I think if a leader's sad, they're not right for that post. And I know there's some heads, as you said, where a school's in possibly a crisis, I think that takes a different type of leader. You can adapt skills, but I genuinely think certain leaders suit certain contexts. I think I like to take schools, I like to take teams that have lots of the components there, but they're not quite gelling together. That's what I like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on the journey of any organisation, then you have to have different leaders probably come in and do different things at different times because... There are the ones that the starters, the founders who have a very different traits. You've got the ones who can take it from startup to growth. And then there's the ones who can take it from kind of the growing pains to something that's elite and something that's high performing. You obviously decided long ago that um, you weren't going to be leading a school in the UK and uh, got on a flight, dragged your family to the Middle East. Why did you do that? What was the attraction? This is my 
26th year. So it's, I've been, half of my life has been overseas, I've just realized. So, and you say drag your family, it was, it was me on my own and Paul Ep- <laughs> uh, finishing off a few things in the UK. So I probably dragged out afterwards. I was on my own. I came with three bags. If I leave, it'll be leaving with three kids, a container, a wife, a dog, lots of other things. So it was interesting. My journey was I came out as a PE teacher and I'd been teaching at a really good school in the UK, a state school. And I'm really proud of that state background for me. It was the Bishop Stortford High School. So I went there as a student, went back as a teacher, but I'd played a half a season of rugby in Argentina in a year out. I did half a year as a delivery driver before they had GPS and mobile phones. And I loved that job. Talk about freedom. <laughs> no one could contact you. No one knew where you were. It was fantastic. But I, I did that to save money to go and play rugby in Argentina where my brother lived. I just got an insight into more than the two-week holiday of seeing somewhere, actually sort of being embedded in somewhere overseas and how rich the culture was, diversity of people. And coming from a, a town in Essex, Harlow, I hadn't seen all those things. So I was really, really excited. And when I went back, then went to university, did a teaching qualifications, I always had the ambition to go overseas. So it wasn't necessarily to lead overseas. I just wanted to work. And as I'm sure any international teachers listening to this will say, it was for two years. That was the plan. <laughs> was that your plan? Two to three years was always the plan. And you just get hooked on the a lovely lifestyle, diverse culture. I felt that the school was giving me opportunities to still develop just as I would in the UK. So it was exciting. Various promotions came along. So over the 19 years I was there, the last nine were as head. I've loved every minute of it. And then I've moved to the Bruce School Alcabira and it was a great move for me and the family in every sense. I just think there's so much excitement about being out of your normal context. Although Having been here now in the Middle East 25 years, I don't know what is my normal context or it's the UK or here, to be honest. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, do you think it takes a certain type of personality to lead a school abroad as opposed to domestically in the UK? I think good skilled heads can move between the two. And that's been proven. I've got some colleagues who have come from very experienced headships in the UK to here have been very successful. I think what it does take is a willingness to understand and embed yourself in the culture. It takes a bit of bravery because you're going totally outside of your comfort zone. But I think you still need to hold your values and what's important and close to you. And I think you can do that. So I think you've got to have an outward focused mind and a willingness to see things that you've never seen before and not say, and people do it here, you know, in my old school, we do it like this or did it like this. I, I think you've got to be open minded and look to change. I love change. I genuinely really enjoy going through change. And I know some people don't, but I just think it's refreshing. So I think that was exciting about it as well. And that would help with a moving overseas or moving to a different context. Yeah. And I think it's all ground on risk. You're taking a risk and, and we, we teach our children to take risks. We want them to take risks. You know, you take calculated risks, but unless you try things, you've got to fail at certain things. But there's also that excitement and energy going, there is an unknown. I'm going to give this a go. But you're driven by that desire to prove people wrong potentially and to prove that you can do that. And I think that's really exciting. What I find with international schools and international heads is there is that kind of dynamic risk taking approach where they are so embedded in doing things and changing things is that I find that the educational model, the curriculum, the things that you do at your schools is quite incredible. There's maybe some takeouts that the UK could pick up on. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think we have, look, there's regulators. We have in Abu Dhabi, we have an inspection every two years, pre-COVID this was, for our local regulator and the inspection standards are very high. We do a British schools overseas inspection as well. 
we're not cowboy country where you just have do what you want, but you do have freedom to be very innovative and try things. And you are not confined to, I think, as many regulations as you may be or conformity as you may be elsewhere. And I like that. I like the fact that you can be diverse. You can try things. You, you, you just mentioned, you know, failure. You only fail when you stop. So if you do something wrong, learn from it, pick it up and try and do better. And that's not failure. That's just improvement. If you try something and don't do it again, then that is failure. So always trying new things, trying to improve. And I think that's the culture we try to put in the school here, that it's, you know, try new things, get them wrong, build on them, make them better. And I love that as that can happen a lot in overseas context. The Queen bestowed an MBE on you. Um, you're now a member of the elite, the member of the British Empire. How did that come about? Did you know about it? It was completely out of the blue. But interestingly, I was near you when I got told and you didn't know that. You and I were at a COBIS conference and it was the Queen's birthday honours. And I was actually, when COBIS did the conference at the Park Plaza near Victoria. So you're in the, remember you're in the basement, so there was no phone signal. And I've got this little thing come up on my phone. It had a sort of signal, but, and it was from one of my governors who was the military attaché at the British Embassy in Qatar. And he only ever called for two things. One, there was a VIP family we had to try and support getting into the school or if there was a security issue. And I was in the UK, so I thought, I've got to take this call because it's either a very important family or there's a security issue. So I've run up the stairs outside the Park Plaza. And if anyone knows where the Park Plaza is, you can actually see the back of Buckingham Palace from the entrance, just right in the corner. And at the same time, my nephew, you know my sister Janet, my nephew Ben had just come back from skiing in the Paralympics in Sochi. And he was actually in the garden party honouring that with the Queen. At, literally at that minute, I got this call. Graham Davis, the governor, phoned me and said, Mark, the Queen has decided to honour you in her birthday honours for your services to education in the Middle East. I've got three questions. I said, OK, you know, I'm sort of shocked at this point. He said, is your name Mark John James Leppard? Yes. <laughs> Will you accept it? And I said, I'd be absolutely honoured to accept it. And he said, will you use it? And I said, what do you mean, will you use it? He said, will you put it after your name? Because it's not only about you. It's about promoting Britain and British values and celebrating that side of Britain. And I said, yes, I would. And he said, OK, it's confidential. Don't tell anyone on, I forget whatever date, it will be announced. It will go to press at 11 o'clock the night before. And at that point, you can tell people. I did tell Paulette, my wife, about it, but we didn't tell anyone else. And then two hours before the press embargo, I phoned my mum and dad and told them, I just wanted them to be able to get the newspaper the next day with it in tears and everything. I didn't tell my sister Janet at the time because the whole world would have found out within an hour. So I did have to go and kill <laughs> after the press embargo. And if she's listening, I'm now going to be killed by her. So <laughs> very honoured, very honoured. You yeah, know, absolutely fantastic. And I mean, what always comes across with you is that you're very approachable, you're very humble. And I, I can imagine, you know, having the letters after your name is not something that necessarily sits easy with you because you're not one to brag or to boast. How has that worked out for you? While you were talking to me and saying that, I was shuffling my chair because I do feel uncomfortable when people say those. <laughs> so, yeah, we made a statement as a school. And, and I actually said that it's absolutely fantastic to be honoured and, and it is a great honour. But I felt it was recognition of the whole team at Doha College at the time where we'd all taken the school. As a leader, I may be more recognised publicly about that. But the team I had around me was fantastic. And that goes back to the, the sports background. I love building teams. And, and I think that was one of the real successes and coming to the Bruce School Alcabira, I feel our team's here has gone from strength to strength and the school's just in a really good place. Even through COVID, it's, I love the fact that the team around me, and I'm talking about the whole school, 
we're focused on the students and giving them the best deal. I think that's what I see that honour was. It was, Mark, you have it, but it's honouring everybody who's been involved in that journey. Yeah, because great leaders are supported by great teams. You know, you cannot do things by yourself. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I want to talk about leadership because, you know, it's such a great, broad topic. And actually what's often not talked about and rarely discussed, leadership and being a leader is often lonely, difficult, thankless. Do you go through times of feeling isolated and, you know, not having that kind of support? I'll answer really honestly here because I always question this question. And my answer is no. And I know some do. And this, this isn't a, a criticism of anyone else. I don't think I do. I've never felt lonely. As I said, my background's team-based. I think a skill I've developed is to identify and build successful teams and the components of that team. And that means not only as a leader am I supporting the teams, they're there to support me when I need support. And the honesty of, guys, I need some support here is important. So I use my leadership team for this. I have a strong relationship with my board and at every board. Boards evolve and every board I've been involved with, we've had a strong relationship. I'd like to say critical friends and we encourage that amongst ourselves. I have a strong heads network in Abu Dhabi and, and around the region. I think our collaboration is more important than competition amongst each other, particularly through COVID. That's been really, really useful. And, and a big thank you to the Abu Dhabi heads where we've worked together. As a school, we're members of IAT, HMC, ISBA and BSME. These organisations create support network. I am a huge believer in accessing coaching. I don't shout about it. I don't do this on a regular basis, but when I felt the need, I access it got a very very strong family and friends set up both here in the UK uh, and without them I think my answer would be very different so I don't think it has to be lonely part of my answer is from an experienced perspective and in the early days when I started Hedge, I may have answered this very differently I mean really great answer because you know I, I, I kind of question this myself you know having founded a, a company 15 years ago um, growing it to, to 50 staff we work with over 200 schools in 37 countries I've probably fallen into that trap more so where it does feel lonely. I feel I have to have the right answer all the time. And I feel like sometimes I have to do it. And, but it's wrong and it's a bad leadership style. You know, I'm an innovator and I can drive things with interest and passion. But then there's certain things that I've just got to let go of. And actually experience and time and failure has enabled me to be able to plug in to good networks. You know, um, I'm really grateful for you, for, for your advice. You know, I know that you and I have chatted and you've supported me through some times. There's been other people and that, that's been great. And it's something I felt really alien to. That's a great message for all leaders and all pupils that want to get into management or want to go through life is you cannot do it by yourself. You have to be supported by great teams and great people. I want to talk about work-life balance because, again, being a leader, running any organisation, particularly an international school, it's full on. Do you have a healthy work-life balance and do you ever really stop working? I think it is possible. Again, I think my answer in the early days of my headship would have been very different. And I think I threw hours and hours at my job and not work smartly. I thought volume and just being there was the thing to do. I've just written a little article for TS. It came out last week or week before about being honest about your work-life balance. And I, and I picked this phrase up. It's certainly not my phrase, but I picked this phrase up that you can't give from an empty bowl. 
So if your energy is down, you're no use to anybody. So I've made a conscious effort when I came to this headship because you can, in a way, realign yourself. I don't come in as early as I used to. I leave work earlier than I used to. I'm not ashamed of that because I need time to charge myself. I need time to think away from the desk. I encourage, well, at both schools, I've said, but there's no obligation for staff to read them until the next day if they're sent after a certain time, unless it's, you know, we've won the world debating competition. We don't send emails in the, I think we've said 5.30 in the evening onwards until 6.30 the next morning. And I think where you talk about lead from the front or encourage people and be in the background, whatever, I think on well-being and work-life balance, the head has to lead from the front. If you're throwing every hour at everything, One, I don't think you're as productive as you can be. I don't think you have clarity and reflection time. But two, you're telling your staff that's what you expect from them. And you'll have complete burnout, exhaustion, resentment. So when heads have a sort of a particular raison d'etre, I think mine is going down the line of staff well-being, self-well-being. It might sound selfish, but I actually think you're being selfish to actually long-term help others. That's how I've really probably the last three years I've really sort of got my teeth into this and I think it's really important. Being able to recharge is massively important because you cannot be a high performer you know in your role without looking after yourself and I'm approaching 50 what I could do in my 20s the hours I could do I just can't do it now and I have you know with four kids responsibilities there is you know burnout really comes close so finding that time, leading by example, stepping outside, I need it because I need to come back infused and energized. If I come back and I'm miserable and a little bit down and that then is migrated into or misdirected into other things and it comes across in a negative way. And Last July, we moved house. I used to live right next to the school at the British School Alcabira, literally two minutes walk. We moved five minutes away, but we've moved nearly half an hour's drive away now. And everyone's saying, why have you moved out there? And that half an hour, and there's a bridge I go over on the way home and and on the way to work. And that's my switch on and switch off bridge. I go home feeling completely ready for what's at home or come to work completely ready for what's at work because I have that switch off time. And I can't say how important that is. I mean, you talked about support. You've been one of my supports as well. I talked to you a few years ago about phones and, you know, we're always looking at them. And you said, turn your notifications off. And since that day, I've turned them off. I don't have my work emails on my phone. I don't have that compulsive red circle saying, you've got a message. I look at my WhatsApp or messages when I want to now, not when it's telling me to. And I think all those little tricks help our well-being. Thanks for that advice, because it has been a game changer for me. And me too. And uh, apologies, because obviously I, I missed your message. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's good that you missed my message. It means you looked at it when you felt you wanted to look at yeah, my Yeah, I suddenly got there, <laughs> um, got there late. You've been abroad for, for a long time now. The international education landscape has massively changed in that time. What would you say were the positive changes? And being candid, what would you say would be the negative changes? I think there's more, for positives, I think there's more consistency about standards. And I think we use each other as benchmarks. So as better schools, or as schools get better, you know, overseas inspections, regulatory ones. I think there's greater recognition of the international arena from the UK. You know, we've got a number of schools from the UK opening satellite campuses. And I think that tells you that there's a strong market there. I think there's a greater focus on CPD. It used to be seen as if you go overseas, you're going into a void of development as you see you know there's some great innovation in schools we've got regional hubs for development etc i don't think you lose out by coming overseas i think you become richer and in fact i think there should be 
an opportunity for teachers to transfer here and back on exchanges. I think that would be something really rich to develop that link. I think a number of heads overseas and schools overseas are leading various aspects of innovation in education. Good colleagues of mine, you know, I'll put a plug out Mark Steed, his work on IT is as good as anywhere. And he's a head who moved seamlessly from the UK overseas. And if he wants to, I'm sure could move back again as well. On the negative, I'm not sure it's really negative. I really want to think that the UK government has not seen the power and influence of the UK education overseas. The soft power, uh, the amount of world leaders that are in these schools who want a British education because it's seen as the gold standard by them. And I'm not talking political government. I just think the UK Institute of Government has missed this. And it's incredible how the soft power will come back and support or bite a country if it's not embraced or is embraced over years, well beyond the voted political party or voted political government. And I think there needs to be a greater push. And I think the fiasco last year with the exams, the to in and fro in U-turns did not help the British brand of education. And I hope this year it is sorted out because it's a, it's a great, I don't like using the word product, but I can't think of another word at the moment. It's a great product that supports many, many people. And I think it's undersold overseas by the UK. I mean, you talk about British education being the gold standard. Do you still believe that British education is the envy of the world? I'd like to think here, there's a number of schools I know where you would go and say that is a fantastic education and it happens to be a UK curriculum that's being delivered. But I also think there's some not so good ones. And again, I think that's the same in the UK. I think it can be. I think it can genuinely be a gold standard. I still think it needs a bit of a shake-up. The GCSEs need a show. I was listening to Jane Gandhi at Swithin's podcast and where she was saying, you know, what's the point of GCSEs? I've been saying exactly the same. I don't think I'm brave enough to get rid of them here because I think it'd be wrong for our context. But I do think it needs a revamp. Now we're having post-A-level university applications. What does GCSE serve? They were always a guide for UCAS, for example, to say what the student's capability or possible potential is. I think we could make our great British education truly the gold standard with a shake-up where it's more innovative around the exam years now. I really do. I think we do a lot of great work in primary. I think secondary is fantastic. I think our exams actually restrict us. I think um, the majority of heads share that view, I think particularly with GCSEs. But I think one of the benefits working in the international British school is that whilst you follow the curriculum, you have also a lot of freedom to bring in all those extra bits that you feel are missing. Is that something that we need to be putting more pressure on the British government to start to look at curriculum, look at the other bits around the curriculum that make it more fit for purpose and relevant for what the world needs post leaving school? We were the first school in the in the region to really drive the BTEC agenda and the vocational education. And my two sons have gone through there. And I think they've learned so much. Um, my daughter's going through it as well. All are capable of doing the academic A-level route, but chose that they felt it offered them more skills that would be required later in life. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for innovation. And I think it does need a review. When in life and in work, you'll know this, you're, you're, you're an innovator. When in work, do you sit in a room for two hours, have to produce a piece of work that is as good as you can do and you never revise it, never go back to it and say, well, that's it, it's finished. That's not life. We don't do those things. You know, we talk about fail, develop, drive forward, improve. Our exams don't let us do that. Our exams are the re one restrictive bit about the whole curriculum. And because there is a, an end grade, we drive the curriculum eventually almost like a funnel into that exam period. And I think it just needs to be looked at differently. That shouldn't be the way, the only way we measure 
And it cannot be on academic ability because, you know, again, the way you revise, the way you try and learn knowledge to be able to then to perform it in a particular time, you know, in an exam, it's completely outdated. And I think the biggest problem we got with BTEX, and I had a, you know, I was talking on one of my previous podcasts around BTEX, is the perception. I remember when BTEX first came around, you know, the perception is that, oh, you're not very bright. We want to keep you in education, go off and do that. And we haven't lost that stigma. You know, even now when I'm looking at where my children are, my son going off and doing A-levels or whatever, it's, you know, why A-levels? There's a natural thing going, oh, I don't want to do BTEC, but actually the BTEC offers them a much broader and a much more relevant education of a vocation that he wants to go into, which is around acting and drama and film production. You know, why does he need to go and do subjects he's very, really not interested in? So what can we do? And maybe this is what we need to be picking up the torch for, is changing the perceptions and elevating the importance of BTEX. At the moment, it's the universities are saying what grades they need. So the schools do the courses that the grade produce effectively. People like yourself saying, actually, someone coming to me with an A star in something, that shows an aspect of what they've achieved. But I want them to be able to be kind. I want them to be able to communicate with people. I want them to be able to hold their own in a debate. I want them to be able to have an opinion. I want them to feel confident they can challenge things. That doesn't come with a grade A star. They're the skills, I think. And if you look at a vocational program in there, you have you have to work as a team. You have to work with the industry. You have all these things which are far more transferable to the real world that these, these young adults are going to be moving into than go into this room, sit behind this desk, and to get the better grade, give a bit of opinion in there as well. I think a blend of the thing, and I haven't got the answer to it should look like this, but I think a blend of things. As an employer, you employ a lot of people. You want people to have a mixture of skills that they can fit into that team. You don't want them to just have one skill. An exam really only measures, I think, one skill in one subject at a time. No, I mean, when I recruit, I don't look at A-levels. <laughs> I don't spend much time. I may look at where they went to university and what, and what subject they decided to choose, but never what they got. It really is down to the person and what they bring, right? It's about talent, it's about fit, it's about personality, it's about drive. You know, there needs to be that energy and whether or not they're capable to learn. You've just got to be open-minded to go, do you know what, I'm still going to learn as we go through life. We do this leadership course. There's a couple of students who need to finish off a couple of bits for it. And I was chatting to them about leadership yesterday. And I tweeted yesterday, I said, this week, I've been teaching for over 30 years. And yesterday, I learned some great things about leadership that the students said to me. And I thought, I've not looked at it that way. We should be hungry to find new things that we can use to improve things. I'm just going to wrap up with one final thing. I've missed our pub quizzes. When is the next pub I knew, quiz? I knew, I knew you. Exactly. It wasn't, it wasn't on my question, my gender thing. But I, I'm just thinking, we've not had a pub quiz now for like two years. I've recently been re-elected to a BSME chair position. Although I've been involved in the conferences for many, many years, as chair, I've not actually had a conference because of COVID. We had to cancel the last two. So the next one we're going to have, and I promise you, we will have a quiz in it. Well, it's always a quiz. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I missed my quizzes. So, OK, I look forward to uh, the, the quiz. When's that? 2022. But I've still got another 12 months, yeah. it feels. I'll be in High Wycombe in the uh, summer. So maybe we'll, we'll go and find one if we can. We'll go and find one. OK, it's, uh, it's, it's a date. Mark, thanks ever so much for taking the time to join me on this podcast. It's been brilliant as ever. Simon, thanks. It's been lovely to chat to you. And obviously, with COVID, we haven't done it enough. But thank you for the opportunity. And uh, good luck with all what you're doing as well. And thanks for your support. 
You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.